Hey, this is Russell. Today I bring you Gina Gorlin. Gina is a assistant professor of psychology at Yeshiva University in the Bronx. She also has her PhD of psychology from the University of Virginia. But more importantly, I think, she has been writing about meaning and purpose uh, in the time of coronavirus. She came to my attention from a blog post she wrote called COVID-19 and the Meaning of Life. It's about Maslow's hierarchy and why it's the wrong framework for thinking about that. And it's about self-actualization in a time of crisis. This is a fantastic conversation. I was so happy that she agreed to be interviewed by me. And I think that uh, you will find it very interesting. I also will link to the blog in the notes below. So enjoy. Gina Gorlin, welcome to What Really Matters. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We have overcome some initial technical difficulties, but I think we're going to plow through. Um, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really great. I'm really happy to, to chat with you. Um, you wrote an article uh, recently that was about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and mm-hmm. I believe that the the thrust of it was something to the effect of why we need to start self actualizing now and. This really mm-hmm. it struck a nerve with me um, because I've always used Maslow's hierarchy as a loose organizing principle for yeah. how I'm spending my time, and I think a lot of people do. But you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you write that this is really not the best framework for understanding meaning in our lives. Is that right? Yep, that's so, my claim, at least the way that it's typically yeah. interpreted and used. So why not? Why is Maslow's hierarchy not a good framework to use? I think the framework has some implications that come baked in to the idea that it's a hierarchy. It just inherent in that concept is that there's this kind of causal chronological sequence that you go through where the bottom rungs or the needs listed lower on the pyramid, A, come first in like a chronological sense. You know, if you're hungry, if you don't have food on the table, then you're not going to be able to really worry about actualizing or finding meaningful relationships. First, you're going to worry about putting food on the table, right? And, and so on. So chronologically, there's this idea that you've got to do the bottom stuff before you get to the top stuff. And I think also conceptually and psychologically, there's this implication that in a way, the later rungs, to the extent that they come later and they're dependent on the prior runs that they're kind of more optional in the sense that well you can't go without food you can't go without a roof over your head for too long right without your physical health obviously on a lot of our minds in this pandemic but self-esteem and fulfillment meaning in life like those are luxuries that you can worry about once you're basically doing okay right that's kind of the implication and i think there's actually something really wrong-headed and demotivating about that idea because in fact, never do we need a sense of purpose and meaning in life and a sense of who we are and and why we're on this earth. Then when we're starving and need to figure out how to put food on the table. But I think in fact, those needs, those resources that are at the top of the pyramid or closer to the top, which I would think of as like our psychological or even you could say spiritual needs, Mm -hmm. those, are actually the distinctly human faculties by which we're able to see to our physical survival needs. Like, I mean, in the article, I gave the example of like, when do you, when do we imagine that the New York City ER doctors have been most desperately in need of like inspiration and a sense of purpose and like a reminder of who they are and why they chose this work? You know, why is it that at 7 p.m. every night, in New York City, we open our windows and we clap for the healthcare workers who are on the front lines because desperately needed in this situation. You know, it's when you're making really high stakes decisions, decisions having to get really creative and like fighting for your life, right? Or in their case, both for your own life and for the lives of patients. Like that's when you really need to call upon those higher faculties. 
So I, 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 I don't disagree with you, but let me push a little more, unpack this a little bit. Maybe, yeah, maybe what we're, well, maybe what we've mistaken as a society is actually elevating the artistic actualization as the top of the pyramid hmm. itself. That's a really interesting point, actually. Well, I, you know, a lot of people are attracted to post-apocalyptic pop culture and literature and things like that yeah. be because precisely, I think, for the reason you're describing, which is that when life feels very precious, when all your decisions are high stakes decisions, life or death decisions, you know, mm -hmm. there's something deeply satisfying about that for a lot of people. Um, and it's always been attractive to me. So why yeah. do I then idolize art and literature and these other things? Why do I think that self-actualization comes from the creation of art when hmm. maybe, I, I don't think you're wrong, you know, it's like we've got everyone baking bread and... Yeah, <laughs> but I think you could do that in a way that's really creative mm -hmm. and self-actualizing and really expresses who you are right there you know baking bread is not a rote activity that everybody just comes born like knowing how to do by instinct right like you have to figure it out and along the way you make all these choices and i think there's meaning in those choices and there's self-expression right in like whether you choose this or that recipe but also like how you change the recipe and what kinds of ingredients you decide to mix in and right like it's actually a very creative endeavor if you approach it that way. Yeah, although I've, I've watched an artist and a baker argue over this precise <laughs> fact and the artist huh. is rolling, rolling their eyes going, oh, come on. <laughs> really? Interesting. <laughs> See, that's what I'm in a way trying to push back on is that exact perspective of like, oh, come on. Who are you kidding? This is such a kind of low and, and petty yeah. pursuit compared to the great work of making art. But I want to disentangle, like, it seems to me that what has happened is that people really are operating in a sort of Maslow's hierarchy framework precisely because they've started doing these activities that are very primal, um, mm -hmm. you know, expanding their gardens, baking, seeking that so sort of social connection that we're mm -hmm. sorely missing. And I can just speak personally, I used to spend a lot of my spare time creating art and you know, doing film making that sort of thing, but I have completely reverted to how do I grow food? How yeah. do I bake? How do I provide shelter and heat? You know, right. Do my home and, and my family. Exactly. Which, yeah. And I don't know if that has like I am trying to disentangle why um, why I've abandoned artistic creation mm. in this time. And if that's a that's bad, really interesting. If I if that's a bad thing or not, like that's why, a really good question. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> like, why am I not spending this time making movies? You know, like mm -hmm. I was before, and just shifting the subject matter of my film. Why am I instead spending this time, you know, like insulating my house better so that I spend less on on propane? You know, next yeah. winter. <laughs> Yeah, and I suspect, I mean, obviously I can't possibly judge like whether that's the better pursuit for you or like whether you're missing out on something by making art or whether it's like a an issue of perspective, right? I would have to know a lot more about your life. But I think part of what that Maslow's hierarchy way of thinking does is that it makes those seem like very separate and almost mutually incompatible mindsets and priorities right like if we're focused on tending to our garden putting food on the table making sure we can pay the bills then we're not in a creative space then we're not focused on the like higher loftier pursuit of artistic projects but if you think about a like people who've made it as artists and of course that's a tiny fraction of people who are like still trying right to make it as artists or who in fact are creating great art but they haven't monetized it so they have to pay for it in other ways right like every person I know who has really seriously committed to like being a performer or to being a visual or like a musical, I know a lot of people are musicians because I was on that path for a while. Like there have been periods where they have been unsure about how they're going to put food on the table. And they've had to think really hard about that. There have been periods where like they had to make sure that they're able to pay the bills next month because as you know, it's not the most, at least initially lucrative career. Right. And, 
in some ways, I think the, the ones who've like been the grittiest and the most resilient, I think are the ones who were able to see the artistry and the nobility in both sides of what they were doing and to draw inspiration for their art in part from their fight to survive, you know, and vice versa, who were able to see the virtue and the loftiness in their like struggle and in their willingness to sometimes either forego like extra luxuries because they really want to be able to spend extra time practicing their art instead of taking the extra part-time job or taking the part-time job and then having to figure out how to like work around it and how to like reserve some of their mental space, you know, as they're like delivering food or as they're washing dishes or whatever it is, like really figuring out how to pack the most creative juice into the time where they're doing something more meaningful or sorry, more menial, right? The opposite. (laughs) right and and I think it's really hard to do that it's hard to like kind of integrate those parts of our life and see meaning in the whole if you will and I think that's the actual project and now more than ever I think that's what we have to do we have to figure out like what does it look like to be me in the context where I need to figure out how to pay the bills next month if that makes sense yeah, it's. It, I think a big part of why this is so difficult to deal with coronavirus is because I saw it contrasted to the Blitz during uh, World War II, where surviving the Blitz involved literally huddling together in groups with strangers. Yeah. Um, and Hitler's theory was that he was going to break the spirit hmm and will of the British people by bombing the civilian areas. And this it is giving the, me goosebumps just thinking about <laughs> this. As you, yeah. Exactly. It had that opposite effect. And it's amazing. Yep. And in fact, they've even done studies where it's like places where bombing was heaviest actually had the highest morale. And yep. in contrast, this crisis involves us separating from each other, even our own family. Yeah. And Interestingly enough, I think there's quite a lot of data to suggest it's still brought us closer together, right? In terms of our social connections, in terms of the intentionality with which we set up Zoom calls with family and find creative ways of doing like movie nights and date nights with people far away that we're not able to physically come close to, right? But it's so interesting. Like, I think it's actually and there are studies ongoing about this, but the sense I get is that it's actually made us cherish our social connections more. Yeah, I think that's true because we're missing them. But what what's difficult is that the advice to stay home and do nothing, not do nothing, but it's... But basically, right? Yeah, like lie in waiting. Yep. Yeah, it's not like, okay, everyone now come pitch in. It's like, no, everyone yeah. stay home and do nothing. And yeah. we're being told to do, I think, the opposite of what is in our nature during a yeah. crisis. Well, that's yeah. a really good point. And so I, I take your point that we need to imbue these survival activities with meaning and stop thinking of them as, you know, at the bottom of the pyramid or as preconditions for, you know, higher orders of satisfaction. But maybe you could briefly hmm. give, give some advice for a moment, but it's like, how do you do that when the advice that the public is being given is to just like do nothing? To, to basically up. shut down and, yeah. and stay paused. That's a it's really good question. I'm glad you're raising it. Difficult to give that meaning. You're so very, very right about that. I think that's part of actually what I was reacting to when I wrote this article, because part of what I see happening is that in a way, this idea that, oh, well, staying home and watching Netflix, that should be easy. Like, why, why is anyone complaining? You know, I don't know if you've seen that meme going around, you know, like, our grandparents were called to war. You're being called to sit on your couch and watch Netflix. You can yes. do this. I hate that meme because the implication is that shutting down our lives and just waiting out this crisis at home doing nothing is A, easy, right? And B, even like possible to sustain as human beings. And that that's, and that there's really no great 
cost to putting our productive, professional, social, creative endeavors indefinitely on hold. I think I'm so glad you're raising this because really, I think fundamentally, this is where I see this mistake getting made the, the most and the most severely with the worst consequences is in this idea that like all those pursuits that we're putting on hold for the sake of saving lives, right, which is a very noble cause, but we're saving lives by putting on hold all these things that are optional, right? That's the implication, non-essential, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, Broadway shows, restaurants, you know, like museums, all these things, they're non-essential. So we can put them on hold while we see to our essential needs, like, you know, not physically dying and, uh, you know, making sure we have electricity and so on. But I think what people are experiencing is those are not non-essential to human life. And that in a certain sense, we can't survive without seeing, A, without like maintaining the kind of productivity and the kind of exchange of goods and ideas that keeps our society running and without nurturing our spirits in an ongoing way. So I think there's kind of two sides of it. That one side that, look, people are still finding ways to do it. And a part of my article is about that. Like, how do we still find ways to do it given this profound challenge that we're being told to sit at home, right? And that a lot of our prior means of fulfillment are being torn away from us. And one of the things that I mentioned in the article too is that we have to mourn that, that there's no, that I think the advice, oh, to just like buck up and deal with it and find meaning in, you know, tending to your garden. Mm. I think that actually really misses a crucial psychological need in all this. It's kind of like saying to someone who lost a loved one, like buck up and get back out there and find somebody new to love, right? A, that advice is really callous and, and cruel and B, it just doesn't work. And I know from my psychological work from a lot of therapy with people who are grieving, you can't, and nor I think should we want to just like forget the loss and move on. And I think there's a real loss. I mean, reading the stories of people who are having to close down their restaurants or their small businesses that they have put their lives in, like this business to them is like a lover or like a child that, you know, they've given decades of their lives sometimes and they've been willing to forego their basic, quote, basic needs for the sake of like seeing their vision to fruition. And now they're closing their doors. And I've choked up so many times just reading the stories of like, people who are having to decide, you know, who are laying off most of their employees and then at a certain point realizing, look, just we can't, like, we can't stay solvent, given especially the uncertainty about, like, when we're going to be able to reopen. Like, those people are also, in a way, being robbed of their life. And I think that's really underappreciated in the current crisis. I don't know if that answers your question, but... Yeah, that's great. So I... So I want to talk about the meaning of life. You you titled the article COVID-19 and the meaning of life. And yeah. <laughs> I know, right? I asked for it. <laughs> so. I, I think a lot of people have their dreams, they have their goals, and life is full of disappointment, and they often fall short. Even if they achieve them, they set new goals that they then ultimately fall mm -hmm. short of. A lot of people ultimately revert I feel, to feeling that having and raising kids is meaning in and of itself. Interesting. And if they leave but one thing to this world, it will be their kids. And you started writing for a general audience. It's very relevant. <laughs> right after indeed. you became a mother. So yes, indeed. why did you decide to start writing more you basically shifted i think as you described it from uh an academic audience to a general audience and yeah the catalyst was becoming a mother is that right that's exactly right so why why was that why did that happen yeah no great question so i so first of all i'm thinking to start with the more peculiar to me aspects of this or what i think are the more universal aspects. but they'll start with me and try to branch out and <laughs> try to broaden from there. But in my situation, so I'm a psychologist, right? And more specifically, I'm a clinical psychologist and I research the obstacles to and kind of therapeutic foundations for self-change. Like how are we, how 
can we inspire and empower people to grow and to make their lives better and to make their lives and to kind of own their lives more and exercise more agency over their lives. So to me, becoming a mother, even more than I had imagined, like I always knew I wanted kids, but actually going through the process, you know, which is a very like messy and dramatic process, as you know, it made so profoundly real and like viscerally vivid to me, like how much it's the same activity, how much it's like, here I am, I'm going to be growing a little human <laughs> from scratch because I've got this newborn. She can't do anything yet. You know, she's this wrinkly, adorable thing. And my whole job with respect to her is like to nurture her growth and to give her like the nutrients and the tools and the inspiration and the love that she needs to grow herself into the person she's going to become. And, and it gets expressed in all these little ways, like from day one, just like deciding all these little things about breastfeeding and about like, okay, but is it going to help to establish more of a like secure attachment if I breastfeed her on demand? You know, there's all this debate about like on demand versus scheduled feeding and like how, you know, and just noticing these little cues from very early on that like indicate to me that she likes certain things and dislikes other things and like building on that and like kind of communicating with her when she has her bath time and like noticing how she really likes splashing around. And that's like an expression, this very early expression of her preferences and like splashing her back so that we can make a game out of it. Like it's, it's so much like the distilled essence of what I've chosen to do in my life, like as even my life's work, you know, of like growing people in fact, or like helping people grow. To me, it's like, it, it's, it was been very clarifying. And and that's part of the reason it really inspired me. It pushed me to really look at my values and to ask myself, like, what do I really want to be doing with the suddenly a lot less time that I have because I'm raising a newborn, but like that suddenly that time is that much more meaningful to me because I'm constantly being reminded of my mission, <laughs> like, you know, to help this little child grow. And how do I do that with the rest of my time? Like, is it going to be by publishing all these peer-reviewed articles that maybe one or two of my colleagues will ever read and a few others will look at the abstract and like, you know, cite it in their paper that no one's going to read? <laughs> you know, like, or is it by actually speaking to a broader audience, which I've wanted to do for a long time? You know, I've been putting aside or deprioritizing for more academic stuff. Like, is that really where I'm going to have more impact? Even if I don't see it, immediately, even if in some ways it's more thankless in the short term, you know, like, where am I really expressing what matters to me? And so she was a real wake up call in that way. I see. So I think perhaps I should have asked you a different question before that <laughs> one, which is, uh, <laughs> well, you wrote also that your goal, your value, your, your life purpose is to foster human growth. Um, yeah. Why, how did you come up with that? Like, why? Oh yeah, that is also a good question. Um, so that has a longer history. And you know, if you think I went on for a while about the easier <laughs> question, <laughs> let me see if I can try to be brief, at least initially with the uh, like lifelong history question. But I, from very early on, was fascinated, A, with the stories of, uh, even just the, plot stories of fictional characters. I was a, an avid reader when I was young. And sometimes I found that I could relate better to fictional characters than people in real life, which I know is a little bit sad. And something that I've really grown. I think that's grown, completely you know, but, normal. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, probably some people can relate. And at the same time, I when I did form really like deep, meaningful connections, like friendships, and I only ever had a couple of friends who were really close um, and was kind of a black sheep otherwise. And the people I was friends with, I, in a way I played a kind of implicit therapist role. And a lot of people talk about how, oh, I was like a therapist to my friends when I was young. And it's a little bit cliche, but the particular way that I experienced it was that there was nothing that fascinated me more than human motivation and and how to like spark it and nurture it and 
and challenge it. Partly, and we in psychology, we often call our work me search to acknowledge the fact that like it always starts in some way with ourselves. You know, mm. we're fascinated in our own problems, and then we generalize that out to okay, well, how does this problem work in other people? But definitely, it started with a, a my own loneliness and my own like reaching and striving for connection and for trying to understand like what's out there and how do I find it and how do I be, be both a happy person and like retain my integrity and my my like nerdy intellectual side like is that even possible or do I have to choose and and I was always very bookish in general and very kind of nerdy and studious but also a very social person like fundamentally and like I'm very extroverted if you can't tell by just how much I like to talk right and and so it made for this very lonely childhood where I both, like I had these very weird, at least, you know, for my like elementary, middle school universe, weird interests and, and I wasn't interested in a lot of the stuff other kids were. And at the same time, I yearned to connect. And I think fundamentally, like learning how to help myself to grow and to reach other people who, who understood and, and could uh, that I could connect with and figuring out how to turn my like kind of frustrated yearnings into a really fulfilling career and a fulfilling life. That also then inspired me to ask similar questions about other people. Like how do I help other people do this basically? Um, so I think that's actually a big part of it. So a lot of people have like personal statements that are sort of like this. My personal mission is X and they write it down yeah. and it supposedly guides everything they do. Um, mm -hmm. I've never been able to do it because <laughs> I can't find <laughs> it's hard. Well, like, it's not always what you even need. I think, you know? Yeah. And I think that it like what constitutes growth? If your life purpose is to foster human growth, what, mm -hmm. how do you know that what you are doing or what you are helping other people to do is is to grow and grow in what way, you know? Yeah. And if you start getting down to the particulars of life decisions, not just for that, like, for example, I, someone once told me, um, uh, oh, my personal mission is to better my life and the lives of others. And I just wanted to that's, say, well, what does that mean? Like, yeah, that's like mean? super vague. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I in think what anybody way? could say that, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, what does it true. mean to you, like growth? How do you recognize Which, now that you mentioned it is also pretty vague, but it's, <laughs> like, uh, it's not much more specific than bettering people, right? Yeah, so great question. So I have a whole perspective, like a whole worldview that I've been building and thinking a lot about for many, many years, and I'm sure will continue to evolve, that informs this question of like, what is the good for a human being? Um, and it's controversial in a lot of ways because it's both secular on the one hand and like not um, and objective in another way in the sense that I do think there are certain broad universals that because of just like the nature of humans biologically, psychologically, that all humans are going to need. So interestingly, which is partly why I reacted to Maslow's hierarchy as I did was because I also think needs are really crucial and I have a different way of thinking about them. So from my perspective, I'm not going to try to like summarize the entire like philosophy and worldview that I'm drawing on, but briefly speaking, what, is, what do I see as growth? I see it as a, an agential in the sense of like conscious and intentional and self-directed process of you know, building a life for oneself that A, is integrated in a certain way, like that isn't just a bunch of scattered pieces, because I think that it's much harder to get our psychological needs met, like for, you know, like purpose and fulfillment, and even just to, you know, like to be efficient and effective and to really make a lot of progress in a direction. I think we need to have the parts of our life fit together such that there's not, con they're not constantly like clashing with each other, right? So if you're like both trying to be an artist and you're trying to be a surgeon, like that's not going to work really well because you need like all of your time for each, you know, just hypothetically speaking, this is an example of like one criterion, you know, for doing this successfully is to figure out like how to have the pieces of your life go together um, and to 
find a way to like create value. And I think that that means both value, both like in the material sense and the psychological spiritual sense, you know, like kind of what you're adding to human flourishing, what you're kind of contributing to the world in exchange for which you're going to get some kind of compensation, you know, and whether that's like you're being paid as a professional or whether that's that like you get really fulfilling relationships with people who want to talk to you because you're interesting or who want to, you know, see your shows or whatever it is, such that it's a sustainable life where like you're both creating value and getting value in return. And you're therefore able to get all of your own physical and spiritual needs met partly by like, by creating value for others, if that makes any sense. So, so to grow for me is to kind of get closer to your own vision, A, to even figure out a vision, right? Because like you said, that one sentence statement is not that easy to come by, right? And it can be really vague in a way that doesn't really guide you or inform your day-to-day decisions. And so to like even figure out a purpose, which of course can change and evolve and be a moving target, but like to have a coherent set of goals and a coherent like set of ideals that are yours that you've kind of chosen and thought through with your own judgment and through your own self-reflection versus just having something foisted on you, which I think a lot of people do. I think by default almost, especially in our culture, I think we have things foisted on us, whether that's by our parents, by just like school, society, you know, they're just like traditional ways. Either it's like, if you're in a certain section, sector of society, it's like, well, you try to get good grades, you go to college, you pick one of these careers that, you know, people pick because they majored in this, and then you like work all your life in this kind of like fairly cookie cutter job just because that's what your friends did or because that's what your parents wanted or because that's what people do. Right. And that to me is a kind of stagnation. It's not, it, it makes it very difficult to grow to the extent that you don't have your own chosen path that you're growing in, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then have, yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, um, yeah. You raised something that I, think often about and I don't want to um, just casually dismiss these sort of people who you know they go into a field because they do it's what their parents wanted or it's you know for whatever reason I think the vast majority of people out there have real oh, yeah. trouble real trouble distinguishing between the pursuit of goals uh, that they yeah. are intrinsically drawn to versus the pursuit of goals that, that were foisted on them as I put it yeah yeah or that absolutely what is expected of them by their mm-hmm. community their spouse you know just their yeah, friends absolutely. or even like I you know freaking idolized Ernest Hemingway growing up and oh. I still have trouble disentangling <laughs> mm. Interesting. whether whether I'm just trying to be more like him <laughs> yep or, That's so true. Yeah. or whether like I really actually am called to be a writer and write more. Yeah. That's a great do, example do of this kind. challenge. Yeah. And so yeah. how do you disentangle those two things? And yeah, so it, it relates to the, these posts you've written about how you're honest with yourself as well. How do you, yeah. how do you think through that? A big part of it. No, that is like half the challenge, <laughs> I think. I don't know if it's exactly half, you know, but it's one of the hardest things I think any of us ever do is actually just answering the question of like, what do I want, right? Like, what do I want to do? Who do I want to be? And it's treated as this, like, uh, you know, I don't think enough attention is paid to that challenge. I mean, in some ways people like talk about finding your true calling or whatever, but in terms of like a toolkit and a methodology for doing that, I think there's a real lack. And that's a big part of what I'm working on in my own research and practice. That is so true. There's no toolkit for doing that that I have seen. That yeah, is like well, actionable. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's validating because then what I'm doing has some value. <laughs> or if I figure it out, you know, if I further develop and operationalize the toolkit in a way that may be a scalable, um, which I hope to do, um, then there might be some value in it. Yeah, so I think it's really hard and I don't want to in any way minimize that. Um, but I do have obviously some ideas about it. And I could go on and on easily because it's much of the work that I'm doing. Um, But I think like you mentioned for me, why self-honesty has become such a big theme. Self-honesty is what it sounds like, which is being honest with yourself, being actively 
honest with yourself and noticing when you're either pretending like you're doing something for one reason when really it's for another. And this, by the way, I think in and of itself is an art and it's actually really difficult and it requires a lot of skill just to kind of figure out when we're lying to ourselves. And there's a lot of research in psychology about that and I'm drawing on some of it, but it, there's also a lot missing again in terms of like guidance because I think a, it's a little bit stigmatized, like on one hand, you know, no, I'm not lying to myself. What do you mean? I'm like being perfect. You kind of tend to double down because there's this sense of like, oh shoot, I've been caught in the act of BSing myself, you know? And on the other hand, ironically, it's also viewed as like this inevitable thing that we all do no matter what. And so why bother? You know, like in psychology, it's even viewed sometimes as a feature rather than a bug. Like it's good to like believe that you're a little bit more competent than you are because then you'll be more confident in your interviews and that kind of thing. So well, it's really hard yeah, to get I've, guidance. I, I've seen I've seen self-delusion as an evolutionary feature. Yep. yep. Where, That's a really common view. You know, like religion is sometimes pitched this way. We're lying to ourselves yep. about religion, but this is like very useful as a social organizing tool. So yep. lying to ourselves yep. isn't a bad thing. It's just built in <laughs> our psychology yep. in a good way. So. Yeah, that's a really common view and a pretty mainstream view in psychology. And it's one that I am just challenging from the ground up. And there are lots of things I can say about like what I think is wrong, both substantively and methodologically with the evolutionary explanations of self-deception that kind of assume, well, if we do it, it must be good for us somehow because it, mm. it comes from this adaptationist model, which many actual like biologists and people who really understand evolution, they reject this model, but people in psychology and sociology and these other fields that are quote softer, you know, and I include myself obviously in this category, like have kind of taken on the evolutionary model because it's awesome and really powerful, you know, and it clearly has tons of explanatory power. And I think what we've done is we've tried to like just hitch it on to all of our questions and all of our, attempts at explaining human nature. So evolutionary psychology is the specific application of um, like selective of all the basic ideas of evolution to our behavior and our motivations and so on. And like we've tried to kind of foist it upon a field where it doesn't obviously or naturally fit by trying to explain everything in terms of adaptation. And I could go on and on about the problems with that. But in our culture, there's this idea, as you're saying, that self-deception is good for us, it's a feature, there's a reason that it evolved. And I think that that's actually poisonous for all of our attempts. Like it's hard enough <laughs> psychologically given all the internal conflict that we face and given you know, just like emotions can be overwhelming and it can be really hard to like think long-term and keep things in perspective, how hard it is to be honest with ourselves in the best case scenario where that's like, nurtured and encouraged and taught it's that much harder because it's not nurtured and encouraged and taught it's sort of viewed as like yeah yeah we're all going to do this sometimes let's just kind of like pretend it's not happening but secretly like nod and smile and say yeah of course you know bs is fine <laughs> so um one of my favorite shows is mad mad men i don't know if you're a fan of that have you seen that um, i haven't watched it i've heard people I think it's mostly about self-deception and mm, the one thing that the you know Don Draver keeps asking the people around him is is that what you want or is that what's expected of you exactly and yeah I, there's that question yeah I just mm -hmm. I, I have found it so difficult to figure out which is which yeah it's really hard right and especially and I, you know, I've done talks on this and I've written on it and we'll continue to, but just to the extent that we haven't been, not only have we not been taught to differentiate, like what is our own voice and what is like a story we're telling ourselves, right? Or like someone else's voice that we've like internalized as if it's our own. But like to the extent that we're almost incentivized to do that because A, other people's expectations often kind of bear down on us as like, virtue signals right as like badges of honor like to the extent that you I mean from BSing essays in English class you know in school and like learning that okay if I can say the things the teacher wants me to say I'll get a good grade and will be rewarded and and praised right versus 
like if I kind of go my own way and disagree with the thesis and, and like do something that's kind of more new and difficult, I will be punished. Like I'll get a lower grade. People are going to laugh at me, right? Like to the extent that innovation and independent thought are discouraged in various ways, it actually makes it that much harder because we're like, we train ourselves not to make that distinction in a way. Like we train ourselves to like be okay with kind of pretending and to compromise ourselves so that we can not be rejected by the group and so on. Well, yeah. Well, one of the, um, one of the problems I think with finding your own path, it's very difficult. So, so you, as you say, you revert to these sort of more institutional paths that are pre laid out for us. And, and you did this yeah. in your own life. To some extent you were mm-hmm. working towards tenure, Yep. which is, you know, uh, cookie cutter path. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and it's like respected and you're exactly. a professor and you will win the uh, praise of your peers and who, who could want yep. anything more than that. And <laughs> you, you right. had, you had to figure out that, you know what, actually that's not, that's distracting me from. Yeah. In certain ways, at least for sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But here, here's where I've here's where I've come full circle on that issue, which is like it's all well and good to tell people they need to find their own path and think independently and really distinguish what they want mm-hmm. and be honest with themselves. And on the other hand, mm-hmm. like here's a conservative viewpoint. You know, mm-hmm. the institutions they may be flawed in one way or another, but there's like a really good reason why we signed up to be a part of institutions for almost oh, yeah. mo- most of human history. And I, one could argue all the great things humanity has ever accomplished was because we signed up with an signed institutional and- path. Yeah. 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 You know, it, you know, whether Absolutely. it's like yeah. the great research that comes out of a university precisely because professors are following that academic path, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, or like going to the moon or whatever it is you want to think of. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe we're all being a little bit too individualistic, like special snowflakes thinking that <laughs> following our own true paths, you know, like, how yeah, do you know, I'm really glad you're raising this because, yeah, because the last thing I would want, the last impression I'd want to give is that I'm anti institution. I think that that's like one of many ways of rebelling against something without necessarily knowing what one is for. Mm. <laughs> and I think it's really common to do that. I love many of the institutions that I am a part of, including, by the way, academia in a lot of different ways. I think there's a reason I'm still on this path. And I don't think I'm on it mindlessly. And I think, in fact, that there's every, how do I even, I'm trying to think how to kind of differentiate these two ways of looking at it, where like people coming together and creating division of labor societies and and institutions and businesses and governments, to me, that is actually a paragon of when it works well, (laughs) to the extent that it works well, it's because people are actually each independently in their own minds, like seeing and buying into a shared vision. And of course, that's often not what's happening. And especially once the institution is established, plenty of people, now that there's this new cookie cutter path, plenty of people take it mindlessly and don't really like understand necessarily like what was the reasoning for creating tenure in the first place? Like, what is that supposed to do for us? Even though actually I think there's a lot of really good reason for the tenure system and the ways in which it protects you once you, you know, meet certain criteria, which I think actually have a lot of merits to them, even though I think they're flawed in other ways. But like once you have proven yourself in certain ways, you're free from censure in a way that actually allows you to innovate and to be critical of the establishment and to push the envelope and do really good science, you know, without the constant concern for like, what are my peers going to think? And am I going to get demoted, you know, et cetera. And so I think a lot of the problem that we see when people buy into a cookie cutter path or feel pressured to take a certain path, without their independent judgment on board. Like, I think the problem there is not with the institution. It's with the approach to making decisions. And in fact, oftentimes I think, you know, I think there can be really great institutions and culture being a big part of that, like institutional cultures that actually promote like independent thinking and judgment. I think some of the Silicon Valley 
entrepreneurial, you know, like startups and, and even more established businesses out there from what I've learned of like Google and Amazon and how they manage their employees that actually are in many ways exemplars of how to like encourage independence and, uh, and self-actualization amongst their employees. And I think it's easier to do that if you're working for a company like that than if you're working for a company that encourages everyone to be a cog, if you see yeah. what I mean. So, you know, so I think there's no conflict at all between like being part of a team, you know, being part of a community and being independent minded and pursuing your own goals and understanding your choices for yourself. I think the conflict is between like a certain ideology or a certain cultural set of norms that discourages that and a, a, a very different set of norms that encourages it. If that makes yeah. Sense. yeah. The, the Silicon Valley examples are good because it seems like what some of them have done is actually insulate huge swaths of their employees from market pressure hmm. and similar, similar to what tenure does for professors, which is to say, actually, mm -hmm. You know, yeah, you're no longer being judged by like a career ladder. You're done with that. Now exactly. is time for you to devote 100% of your time to like independent thinking, regardless of what anyone else thinks. It's an institutional yep. way. It's an institutional innovation to to create more independent thinking. And, exactly. I mean, Google has their like, and Amazon have their like money making centers. And then mm -hmm. huge swaths of the company that don't make any money at all, but they're like doing things that are basically moonshot. Yeah. You know, projects or so. yeah. And I, I mean, one thing to say about, uh, cause this really like cuts to the heart of my whole thesis in the, in the Maslow, you know, anti Maslow's hierarchy piece. I think the idea that there's this conflict between like making money like let's say if you're Google or Amazon and being yourself and being true to your own idea, you know, and innovating and exploring, I think that's at the heart of many of the problems that, that we've been talking about, because in fact, in the short term, it's often true, right? Because like to make a quick buck, you've got to just kind of like pitch your product to like the lowest common denominator of like people who are just going to kind of grab at it without, you know, without a second thought, but like to actually, build up a a reputation over time and b to like innovate at the level where you can like disrupt an industry you know like what steve jobs did with the iphone which just completely transformed all of our lives just like the fact that we live in a world with the iphone is like substantively different than the world before the iphone right and like that made oodles and oodles of money <laughs> and he didn't do that by erasing himself and his own judgment and preferences and just trying to pander right? On the contrary, like he did that by pursuing moonshots and, and by creating incentive structures within his company that like insulate people from like short-term pressures, you know, to compromise a vision for the sake of like somebody's pat on the back, right? Yeah. Like, but ultimately that is what made them so profitable. And I think that's a really important thing to realize. Yeah. But this is, this is, um, sometimes I worry about examples like Steve Jobs because they like, in <laughs> Mm -hmm. a, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of baggage there. Yeah, well, then I meant more because like the exception that proves the rule. It's like, oh, sure. If you, um, I mean, I look around at society, and I actually, I think you're at the heart of of a lot of the decisions people have to make in their personal daily lives as to like, do I pursue money to feed my mm -hmm. family versus do I think more about self actualization and just hope the money comes later. And the Steve Jobs example is is the latter. It's like I'm gonna just sure. do my moonshot at all costs, and then like voila, you know, it's mm -hmm. gonna it's gonna turn into the next Apple. But I look around at society and I see like so many people doing quote essential things mm -hmm. that get paid horribly, and then I see a lot of people pushing money around mm -hmm. uh, databases that get paid very handsomely. And then I see a lot of artists creating amazing stuff that don't get paid at all. And I'm not sure I see the link between value and money at all. Like I just it's, don't. Yeah, it's hard to. Yeah. In our, especially, you know, the way that our culture is set up. And yeah. And so whenever I hear the advice, like, well, do your thing and the money will follow. 
especially if you do it passionately enough. Right. It's hard um, to believe given right. <laughs> how much you see the opposite. Yeah. yeah. No, I totally hear that. And I think there's like a lot that I could say about this and you know, I'll try to make it more conversational. <laughs> but I think part of the issue is that, yeah, to make money in anything that isn't, and really at anything, it's just sometimes it's more, like you've got to offer something that people want, right? Like where does money come? Like money is a medium of exchange. Well, which is like a huge problem, right? Like, <laughs> like if you're a writer, the stories that get a lot of attention and readership are like not my favorite ones and probably not my oh, best. Oh, yeah, ditto. Mm-hmm. You know, and like just because a lot of people want another Avengers movie doesn't mean that like that's the highest form of human endeavor, right? So absolutely, sure. Using, using <laughs> although I do like those movies, but I, I like I definitely them. Hey, with you. <laughs> I like the Avengers movie sometime. Yeah, but, but I'm with you. You, you yeah. see the problem. It's like a, money shouldn't yeah. be the definition of value, but nor should oh whatever people want. Is, exactly, that is the problem, right? That there seems to be this like impossible like. This is this dichotomy between, on the one hand, I, and I think this is how, one of the ways this dichotomy gets off the ground is like, okay, well, there's doing what I want and what brings me fulfillment and joy, or there's like doing what other people want me to do and that are, they're willing to pay me for, right? And it's just seen as like fundamentally opposed. And I think there's some, obviously like there's a real reality to that problem in that often a people don't have great judgment and don't necessarily want the things that like are the highest and the best b there's some subjectivity built in there right Mm -hmm. and and at the same time that's the human condition and i think part of what it's interesting like there are certain things people take for granted as like well like we we all get educated and put food on the table and we have medical care. Like, so now we can worry about like, you know, do I go into like, which of these careers will actualize me more? Because like, that's where things get tricky, you know, and where, where there's decisions to be made. But like, why are we able to take that for granted? I think like, and of course now we're much less so, especially I think fewer and fewer people are able to take that for granted now that the pandemic is happening and like, there's actually less wealth to go around uh, on the whole. Right. But like, we're taking it for granted because these things have been provided for us by people who thought really hard and were and like worked and sweated and are still, of course, to this day to like provide, to make it really easy to buy food and to have internet and to have electricity and to make it actually so much cheaper to just even invent the, you know, invent agriculture and refrigeration and antibiotics and soap right and like all the things that now make it actually so easy like we have a problem of throwing food away and like you know obesity is one of our highest um sources of mortality it's not starvation right and i mean that's still really serious i don't want to diminish it but the fact that like we live in this world of plenty and that's not how we started and that's not how life is for you know many many people who live in different places than we do, you know, and now increasingly even people in the Western world. But like, I think we forget that that's not the starting point. We forget that like, part of being a human being is like figuring out how to survive and figuring out how to put food on our tables and figuring out like, and that's where I come back to this thesis of the article that like, yes, it's really important to strive for, you know, the highest kind of potential that we're capable of and to self-actualize. But like, also, there's tons of meaning to be had in figuring out like how to be solvent and figuring out how to attract an audience. Like that in itself is a really creative endeavor. And, and it's not just, you know, and in art, it's the most obvious, like how kind of subjective it can be in, in art. But like there's tons of creativity in figuring out how to get food to people, right? And people will always need food, right? And so like that's something if like if we're looking for a place where we can both like innovate, be ourselves and make sure that our work, our work is going to be valued, make sure we're going to get paid, like go into the food industry, right. Or like go into, you know, any number of like, or, or the medical industry, right. Where like clearly people are going to need that. I mean, for me, I kind of lucked in that what I loved doing part of it is 
you know, helping people through their problems and like helping with people's mental health. And it turns out that people are going to need that even in crisis, especially in crisis. And that like, I've never had higher demand for my services, you know, which is something that I, I feel very fortunate about, but like, <laughs> I bet, <laughs> no, I bet, <laughs> yes, I bet you've never had high enough. demand, uh, exactly. never had higher demand. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, this is not an easy answer to your question, but I think part of it is just like realizing that part of the human condition is figuring out the answer to this question and that there's creativity and virtue and a lot of the same lofty kind of you know, uses of our capacity and independent thinking involved in figuring out how to do that. Yeah, I think you had a really good insight. It's both obvious and very insightful to just point out that as a culture, we have lost the habit of thinking of issues of survival as imbued with meaning precisely yeah. because we're so wealthy and we, we've all had enough food on our table for so long and talking about right. most of the wealthy Western world at this point. And that Indeed. if the pandemic can reacquaint us as yeah. a culture with imbuing those things with meaning in and of themselves, I think that that will be really helpful for people's mental health. Um, yeah, totally. Probably good for society as well. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Knock on wood. I have uh, one more question for you. Um, sure. You majored in both philosophy <laughs> and psychology. And I, I think that really okay. shows, I think if you were just into psychology, that would be less interesting. So <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think so? Yeah, I mean, I I studied philosophy too. You have a painting of Plato and Aristotle on your website. So, what does philosophy? What does the study of philosophy have to say about psychology that perhaps psychology alone itself might mm. miss? Oh, I'm so what a wonderful question to end on. I mean, for me, obviously. <laughs> um, I so you know when I talk about like having a worldview and having a perspective that informs how I think about growth and like how I think about human needs. A lot of my perspective on how to help people is rooted in philosophy and rooted in philosophical thinking um, that I learned to do both in my undergrad and through a lot of ongoing study and, um, and reading since then. And the questions at the heart of everything we've been talking about, you know, like the question of, what is the meaning of life? And like, how do you even answer that question? Like, what are we here for? And what gives us meaning? And should we be concerned with you know, other people's expectations? Or should we be concerned with fulfilling our own, you know, purpose and choosing our own path? And like, is that even good? What makes that good? Those are philosophical questions. Yeah. Psychology doesn't have the tools to answer those questions. And I know I've been <laughs> specializing in those tools, you know, since I went to graduate school. And it just has nothing, it, it has starting points that it got from philosophy. You know, Freud was as much a philosopher as a psychologist. And a lot of the behaviorists who put into place a lot of our current kind of methods and things that we kind of take for granted as starting points in psychology, they, behaviorism was a school of thought that came from philosophy, right? The way we do our science, Currently, we're, we are on this paradigm, this kind of largely hypothetical, deductive, like Kuhnian, Quinean paradigm of like how to do science and how to establish causality, you know, like to find out if a given treatment actually leads to improvement in certain symptoms. Like we are using a paradigm that we got from the philosophy of science and most psychologists don't even know that. They think it's just the way to do science. And I actually have a lot of criticisms of our current methodology that I think misses a lot of really important sources of data and, and synthesis. But psychologists just who, who didn't study philosophy just don't have that background and assume that this is just like how things came. <laughs> you know, like this is the only way to think about humans. This is the only, these are the only things that count as positive outcomes. Like, mm. and some of it happens to be pretty decent and some of it I think is really flawed. And yet we, those assumptions are invisible to us if we start from you know, like the, uh, the adoption of these like perspectives on the good life, perspectives on good science, and just like take them for granted without asking the philosophical question, like, is this the right view of the good life? How do we even know? You know, is it, the sa is it gonna be the same for every human? Like what it really means to like 
live well and, and flourish? Is that even the right question to be asking about humans? <laughs> you know, like those are philosophical questions and there's so much, there's so many resources in philosophy, it, the whole virtue ethical tradition going back to Aristotle, you know, and yeah. lots of competing ethical traditions that all have a lot of arguments for them, you know, and a lot of debate between them. I think that should be part of standard curriculum for every psychologist. Yeah, probably a lot of people could save themselves some some time and cut straight to the heart of a lot of questions just by reading Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Seriously. I will. Amen to that. <laughs> End with that book recommendation to our listeners. Good. I, I approve. I couldn't have found a better way. You know, it was so, great talking with you. Likewise. Thank you so much, Russell. This was a really great conversation.